Can you heal from abuse? What do I do after leaving my narcissist? What does a healthy relationship look like? These concerns cross the minds of over 20 people every minute, over 28,800 people every day. And the sad fact is, we still don't talk about it enough. Healing from emotional abuse isn't a band-aid situation, but it doesn't have to take years either. The lives of millions of other survivors around the world have been impacted by their narcissist. Yours doesn't have to. To show you how to live a free, confident, and peaceful life, your host and founder of the Healing from Emotional Abuse philosophy, Marissa F. Cohen. Welcome back to Breaking Through Our Silence. Today, I want to welcome Lieutenant Colonel Jeff Rector of the U.S. Air Force and the Air National Guard. He's a former SARC and has worked with survivors of military sexual assault. He also feels that he's been retaliated against for supporting those survivors. We both feel strongly that the abuse of power in the military is dangerous to the readiness of our troops and the mental health of the people that enlist. Thank you so much for being here, Jeff. I'm so excited to have you. Thank you, Marissa. It's been my pleasure to be a part of your podcast. These are great. Oh, thank you so much. I appreciate that. So would you mind telling us a little bit about what you did as a SARC? Sure, sure. I was a sexual assault response coordinator for my Air National Guard unit from 2011 to about 2015. As a sexual assault response coordinator or SARC, I obviously take care of the, the health and well-being of those who feel that they were assaulted or report sexual assault in the military. It is a very tough position based on some of the things you encounter both as a SARC and some of the things you have to do for these survivors. I was passionate about my position as a SARC. I had been in the military at that time for about 29 years, both enlisted and then an officer. And I I felt that taking care of those folks that get the mission done was paramount. When I was a SARC for the first few years, obviously it's a pretty heavy and a pretty steep learning curve and training curve because coming out of other different military specialties and going into the SARC position, it's not something you can train for right out of a book. You, you have uh, some, some, good, some good training that's provided to you by civilian training authorities, and then you go through a very rigorous certification process that finds you certified to be that sexual assault response coordinator or victim advocate for these folks. So it is pretty thorough. You're always learning, and I think that's important to note when you're a SARC because it's not the same every time when you're dealing with someone that survives a sexual assault. In my five years as a SARC and being a member of the Air National Guard in our home unit, obviously I was well known by many. And the first year as a SARC, it was difficult because, you know, it's a trust thing. Being a SARC, being a victim advocate is, is complete trust of the other person in the reporting. So if somebody does experience a sexual assault or even a harassment charge, if you will, they come to you for guidance. They come to you because they trust you. They come to you because they feel that hopefully their story will be heard. And whether it's accurate or true or however you want to call it, it's, um, it is a trust thing. And I feel that with that position comes huge responsibility because you're also helping that survivor cope with whatever trauma they may have experienced. My first year or so, I learned how to be a SARC, how to listen attentively and to talk to folks about the program, about sexual assault in the military. The SARC program or the sexual assault program didn't get a lot of attention until probably the mid to late 2005 through 2009. And then it really started to get a lot of attention at high levels, leadership levels, which made it mandatory that all members of the military had a annual sexual assault prevention response training identification. They were all 
they were all identified as a you know person that if you see something, say something, report assault, report sexual assault. So the, the program was, was really uh, getting a lot of attention. And I, I believe it was for the right reasons because there were many sexual assaults in the military and it did need to be addressed. What happened in my organization um, is I saw leadership promoting the program. Every April was Sexual Assault Awareness Month. And as I felt they were putting the right attention on it and making steps toward addressing sexual assault and making sure that people knew the right way to report these assaults, I then noticed that when the assaults were reported, things started to change a little bit because as my position evolved and I put three new victim advocates into place and those folks had a very good awareness of the organization, people started coming forward and started reporting situations that may have been sexual harassment or even sexual assault. And as you know, per the regulation, the only folks that can receive um, a sexual assault report would be uh, medical or chaplain staff and or a SARC or a victim advocate. It's a very close group when it comes to reporting because you want to protect the identity of the survivor and even the perpetrator. You know, we want to make sure that we have all our facts to go forward with, uh, with the assault claim. So again, we had reports that were happening in our organization, and I believe that was because members inside our organization trusted us to tell us this information. And that's a big thing. That's a key point when it comes to the SARC program. When our organization leadership started to see that there was reports increasing, I think they got a little nervous because, you know, as a command, they always say, oh, that doesn't happen in my organization, or, oh, that can't happen in my organization. I know my people. I know my people. It won't. It doesn't happen. Well, that's a lie. It does happen. And when you have people in key leadership roles that promote the program and they want folks to report it to those in the SARC, SAPR, or victim advocacy program, they're going to report it. And when they do, it's our job to take care of them. So what was happening is the reports were coming in. We had to identify and address all of them and process all of them per the regulation, per the guidance. And as you know, in the military, the numbers have increased. Sexual assaults have increased, even though they've said that they're addressing the problem. I personally don't feel they're addressing the problem. I feel that they're washing over the problem and they're making sure that they check the block every April and put it as a sexual assault prevention and awareness month. But in my experience, both professionally, personally, and in my role as a SARC, I do not think they are addressing the problem. I 100% agree with you. I think similar to the suicide program that they have, it's all just kind of a cover your ass, check the box situation because these programs haven't been updated. And I sat in when I worked at the 416th, I sat in on one of the SARC programs and everyone walked out laughing because they said, you know, don't touch somebody's butt. And so it was just, it was made into a big joke. So it looks like via the paperwork that they're actually doing the work to prevent and create awareness and keep their military members safe. But truly, they couldn't care less. As long as their box is checked, they don't care. And as long as leadership, as you know, in the military, it's a, leadership looks to their annual officer performance reports or OERs in the Army, OPRs in the Air Force. The, the commander, as they're writing his or her OPR, that commander wants that bullet on there that says, you know, achieved 100% training in the sexual assault prevention response program. That's what they want. They don't want to have, oh, two sexual assaults were reported while this person was command. Okay, that's not a good bullet to have on your OPR. So 
You are correct. They do check the block and they do move forward and they do not want the negativity to show because that means that under their command, which they're supposed to do as officers is command the good and or the bad, take responsibility for your folks and protect them and make sure they trust you. So if you have two or three sexual assault reports, it doesn't go on their OPR. It really doesn't go anywhere. It stays within the database and it gets looked at by higher headquarters and they choose whether or not they want to say they were of assault or, well, that probably didn't meet the requirement of the sexual assault. We're going to put that as maybe harassment or maybe lecture or counsel the individual involved. Meanwhile, the survivor has been told by people like ourselves, Sark, Sapper, and or victim advocate, that we're going to help them. We're going to take care of them. There's programs in place to help them. Now they've reported the assault, whether it's a restricted report or unrestricted report, but people know when you report an assault because now you have that target on your back. I will not go out and say this person reported an assault. However, there is some attention that's paid to the person that does report this. If you think about where your sexual assault prevention response offices are, especially in, in my experience as a SARC in the Air National Guard, my office was right next to the wing commander, which is the leader of the base. So we are sitting there behind major glass windows in the big palace of the leadership command element, and I'm sitting next to them. And all of a sudden, what do you think is going to happen if a male or female comes in my office crying, you know, in front of all of leadership? Do you really think they're not going to say, hey, uh, Lieutenant Colonel Rector, what was going on with that person? Or why were they in your office upset? Well, obviously they might've been reporting something that was, you know, in their the sexual assault realm, but we don't know. And I'm not supposed to tell them that until we do the report and file the proper paperwork. You don't divulge the name of the survivor until they choose if it's going to be a restricted or unrestricted report. I'm glad that you brought that up where the offices were located and the layout of the building, because I've heard from other people as well who are SARCs for the Navy and from other branches of military that everyone knows who the SARC is, right? Mm -hmm. Like you are a widely known position. Your poster is everywhere. Right. And so for someone to go to your office, it's almost like making an unrestricted report regardless. Because even if I was just going into your office to have lunch or have a conversation or something, everyone would automatically assume, oh, she's going to report an assault, you know, and it just automatically puts a target on your back whether you make a report or not. And that's right. unsafe. I personally think that's something that needs to change as well. And, and they did, uh, well, the Air National Guard did address that, and they did make some of the sexual assault prevention response people non-military. So they did a Title V resource for those people. That mean they're non-military status. They don't report to you know, military leadership. So it was an attempt to relax the system a little bit to show that, well, you know, even though that, that me as Lieutenant Colonel Rector reports to Colonel so-and-so, my OPR has a bullet on it that said, you know, the SARC of the organization and was able to train 100% of the people in record time or had a great program in place and only four reported incidents for the last year or something like, you know, I, I'm making that up, obviously. But my OPR is signed by the guy or gal that's in charge of the organization. So if I choose to start reporting all of these sexual assaults, he's going to kind of, he or she's going to say, you know, these are really accurate. You know, what are you doing? And, and let's look at this program a little deeper because all of a sudden all these people are coming forward. Well, it's real. It does happen. But like I said, in my position, people trusted me. So they came forward. And in fact, I had two or three reports and I had commanders that said, Hey, Lieutenant Colonel Rector, he's our shark. 
if anybody can help you, it's him. He will do the job for you. Okay. That's what they would say. But then uh, later on down the road, as I experienced the wing commander turned that around and, and I feel was, I was retaliated against for doing some of those, turning in some of those statistics, doing my job and helping those that are survivors of sexual assault or even harassment. I was even looked at to help out with the uh, equal opportunity program too. So it's a fine line to walk as the SARC or as a victim advocate because you're wearing two hats. It's a very important program, but will the command put that kind of emphasis on that program? So let's talk a little bit about how the commander and how the wing commander for the Air Force has a big say in whether these are actually investigated. You touched on how, you know, they can say, oh, well, was it really an assault or is it maybe a harassment or maybe they're not telling the truth or blah, blah, blah. So what happens? Why does the commander have that much power? Well, as you know, like I I said earlier, the commander in this situation is basically notified when there is an assault reported. It doesn't, there's no names associated with it. It's just, I was by regulation told that I had to tell command within 24 hours that there had been an assault reported and we leave it at that. So what happens is I, as the wing SARC would report to a higher headquarters, state headquarters SARC, which was the army and the air force SARC for the state. Okay. In Vermont, we would have monthly meetings where we would go over every case that was reported. And in that room were key people. There was a, the chief of staff of the unit. Um, there was the director of psychological health. There was a medical professional. The SARCs were there. There may have been a victim advocate chaplaincy because we discussed the care of the survivors, if you will, and where the case was in the process. What I experienced sometimes is as we talked about the new cases, leadership in the room, whether it be a one-star general or a colonel, would say something to the effect that, you know, that really doesn't sound like an assault. Let's look at that a little deeper. And I would say, so what you're saying, sir or ma'am, is that you don't trust your soldier or airman because they reported what they felt was an assault, okay? And they would sometimes answer, yep, I think we need to look into it a little deeper. Before we report that as an assault, I would like to look into that deeper. So you can see right there, the command has influence on how they're reported and where, or if they're reported as an assault. Because if it's not reported as an assault, it goes back down to a different channel where they can control the outcome of the survivor and or the perpetrator. And as you mentioned in one of your other podcasts, the perpetrator doesn't normally get moved right away. Even if there's an assault that occurs or a suspected assault, we as the SARC or victim advocate have no jurisdiction to say that person needs to be removed unless it's reported to civilian authorities, which most of the time when the survivors are very distraught, they don't know where to go. They just remember that, oh, by the way, Lieutenant Colonel Jeff Rector is the SARC. I remember his picture. I'm going to call that number or I'm going to call the hotline. And then the SAPR hotline is going to send the information to me and I'm going to address it with the member. So you can see where that disconnect can be. It can be very confusing as the process goes through. And to get back to your original question, the command has the ultimate authority whether they're going to say that was an assault or not because it may not look that good on their command record, especially if they're going for their next promotion or their next assignment. Okay? That is a blatant abuse of power because... Correct. If you think about it, they're manipulating the system to work in their favor. That's not okay. 
And it's total command influence because if you're sitting across the table, whatever rank I'm wearing on my collar or my sleeve, I look across and I see somebody of higher rank that may even have an influence on my, my next promotion or my next assignment. Am I going to challenge that person to that discussion? Probably not. It's almost psyops when the military, you see your, you see your reporting official across the table and they're telling you, don't do that or don't report it that way. What are you going to say? No, sir, or no, ma'am. You're going to say, yes, sir. I think that that's such a bullshit way to do things. I mean, I know it's a bullshit way to do things because it's a manipulative, abusive relationship, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, it fits all the categories. They're manipulating the system. They're gaslighting you to think that what you're saying isn't true. And they're, you know, holding your promotion over your head. That's It's abuse of power. It's abuse of power. And the long and short of it is, you know, when I was in my position as a SARC, I had a long and, and distinguished career. I was actually nominated to go to what they called war college for a senior officer. And I was not an aviator. Um, normally, most of those positions go to aviators for their performance report to make it look you know, presentable for their next command. So I was probably one of 150 officers in the wing that was nominated to go to in-residence war college as a non-rated officer, which is, it was a good feather in the cap. And I was doing a great job to get the programs going, get the programs running, making sure everybody knew how to report. But then when the reports started coming in, I started to see that they probably weren't too happy that they were getting this many reports. As you saw, I think the Air Force put out, most recently they said that the sexual assault in the Air Force was increased last year. Obviously, we're not fixing the problem. I mean, it's good that people feel comfortable to come forward and report an assault if it does happen. However, I would be interested to find out how many of those reported assaults ended in some sort of disciplinary action for the perpetrator, because you don't get that information. You just get the reports, okay? Meanwhile, the survivor is still in the same organization. Unlike the active duty military, any National Guard unit, whether it's Army or Air, inside the state, and the state like Vermont, which is so small, if there's somebody that was assaulted, how are you going to move them to a different organization and not have them be seen as that person, right? You can't just say, okay, you're, you're going somewhere else and we're going to move you and protect you. That doesn't happen in a small state like Vermont because there's only one Air National Guard unit. So it's not like they can just move them across the road and say, yeah, you're good. You're protected. Right. You can't do that. So we have to look out for the best interest of the survivor. The problem is that's not what happens. Correct. As far as I'm aware, they either transfer the survivor somewhere else or tell them to unfuck themselves and get over it, or they wait a little while and then send the, and then PCS the perpetrator, which is disgusting because they haven't been counseled. There's no repercussions for their actions, and they're going to go off to a new unit and do the same exact thing. Or what I like to say is ride them off into the sunset, because in my experience, I had a survivor come forward a female survivor that had been assaulted by a senior officer in her chain of command. She came to me and reported it. She reported it as unrestricted. So we had the full range of making sure everybody knew the individual that was named as a perpetrator was then removed from the base, put on administrative leave for a little while. We went through the process of reporting. We called in the National Guard CID team that came up and did an investigation. Meanwhile, this senior officer was what they call in a mandatory separation date window, which means within so many months, 
they were going to be mandatorily retired if leadership did not take action to continue their service. And I made mention of this to the leadership in our organization and said, sir, this person is due to have a mandatory separation date, at, you know, one October, and it's now June. We know how long these process take, so I would recommend that you put some sort of administrative hold on this person so they do not mandatory separate without any active action. The leadership said, sure, we'll take that into advisement, we'll take that into consideration. Meanwhile, as you know, the process in the military is not fast. It took a while to get the process through the, the system, get the report in, have a board, and then next thing you know, there was a discrepancy found in the package. It came back for review, and then the perpetrator was allowed to retire without any kind of incident because the separation date came up. So things like this do happen. Leadership is well aware of how they can, if you will, circumvent the system. Meanwhile, the survivor, what kind of support does the survivor get other than a letter? A letter that they made me write and say, we're really sorry, there was a discrepancy in the package, and this case is closed. Which puts the onus on you and not on the leadership yeah. and abuse of power. That's yeah. disgusting, and that builds systematic distrust of the SARC program. Mm -hmm. So it's really, it's like shooting yourself in the foot as a SARC because you want to advocate and you tell them you're going to advocate and you're going to help and you're going to get this person penalized for their actions and then you do everything right, follow the system and it's shut down for probably like a missed comma, like something oh, yeah. so small and then you are the one held responsible for their actions and the perpetrator's actions and then people don't come to the Sarks anymore. It's disgusting. Right. So they, they all know that there's a process that takes place. It's very well advertised what the process is when you report a sexual assault. And obviously they know it takes time. We try to do, you know, expedient as quick as we can. Um, but we're at the mercy of the other part of the system to do their process. And again, like I said, these programs supposedly get a priority in the, in the big picture, like the Air National Guard or the Army National Guard or the Air Force. But if you look at the program itself, there are not enough people in the program to staff these type of situations. There's not enough teams that can go out to each organization and review the folder or have a board or they just can't. It's not a way to do business. And I feel personally that this program should not be a military program. It should be managed by a civilian program. You know, they should take these people that have been SARCs, that have retired as SARCs, that have retired as victim advocates, and they should form some sort of contracted division that can address sexual assault in the military directly. So the person that's the survivor isn't scared to call that number and say, you know, can you help me? They don't know who that is on the other end, but they know they're trained. And we don't know as that team who this is and what their situation is. We just do the investigation and report it through the channels through command. That way I don't feel that I'm going to be retaliated against for doing my job. And the survivor hopefully gets the comfort and care they need to proceed forward. And then justice is served through the military program. That's amazing. And I think that you and I and Never Alone are really going to make a huge difference for survivors of military sexual trauma. I think there's enough expertise and enough enthusiasm in our group to make that happen as long as we're heard. And, and I think why not take all the money and all the resources that we currently throw at sexual assault prevention response in the military. So if you think about 
the Starks, the victim advocates, and all the other people that are trained and certified via the advocacy networks out there, that's a civilian network that the government pays for them to train us. And we know that Starks don't stay in their position for more than probably three to four years. Me, especially as the uh, executive officer, only stayed there for four years and I was moved on. So we had to train somebody else, certify somebody else. If you have a civilian coalition that can do these and manage these programs, just budget accordingly and take the Sarks and the victim advocates right out of the organization and let this coalition manage it. That's a really good idea. I really hope that this works out for us. I think that it could be really beneficial to a lot of people. What advice would you give as a former Sark to people that are still either afraid to come forward or still fighting for their freedom? It's a very traumatic event and everybody deals with it differently. I think if I was to share my experiences and to give someone or anyone guidance, trust the system, but always verify the steps you make. If you're going to file a sexual assault report, make sure you get copies of all documentation. You document every time you keep a journal of when you did things or where you went and who you spoke to because that will pay huge dividends during the process because you're not always going to be speaking to somebody in your organization about this. You're going to end up being talking to somebody at the, you know, the Office of Complex Investigations or someone outside, maybe even civilian authorities. So it's always good to keep some sort of written journal or have somebody that you trust as a wingman or a battle buddy, if you will, and have them keep the journal because it is a traumatic event and you may not be able to keep this journal. But if you trust somebody else to help you through the program, get that person that can be your battle buddy or your wingman and help you through it. I love that. Is there anything else that you want to talk about that I missed? I think this is a a great program uh, that you're doing to highlight sexual assault in the military and make sure that survivors of sexual assault are treated the way they're supposed to be treated, like human beings, and they're not treated like a number or a machine or some sort of person that can just be pushed aside and not treated with human decency. You know, I think that's applause to you for doing this. Oh, thank you. I appreciate that. And thank you for everything that you have done for survivors as a Sark and as a human, but also the things that you're doing now post all of that, knowing what you know, helping military sexual assault survivors heal. I really appreciate your work and your friendship. Well, thank you. You too. I really want quickly want to plug the book that you and I are working on together. It is another book in the Breaking Through the Silent series. It should be coming out later this year, and we'll come back on and give you some updates as it progresses. But if anyone listening is interested in participating as a survivor, and wants to contribute to this book, feel free to email me or message me on any social media, and we will make sure to have your voice be heard, anonymous or not. If you enjoyed this podcast, you have to check out www.marissafaycohen.com backslash private dash coaching. That's www.marissafaycohen.com backslash private dash coaching. Marissa would love to develop a made for you healing plan to heal from emotional abuse. She does all the work and you just show up. Stop feeling stuck, alone and hurt and live a free, confident and peaceful life. Don't forget to subscribe to the 
the Healing from Emotional Abuse podcast and follow us on Facebook at www.facebook.com backslash Marissa F. Cohen and Instagram at marissa.fay.cohen. We'd love to see you there.